They weren't drifters. They both lived there. But they were characterized by the Bedford Sheriff's Office as drifters because they were hitchhiking from Lynchburg to Roanoke. I was like, what does that have to do with my dad? And he said that when he first heard that my dad could have been involved, he went with it. And he said he stuck with it ever since. He also could tell us what his dad's blood type is. Do you think he knows? That is so interesting. Yeah. Let's ask him. Maybe. We'll see how it goes. We're doing okay. How are you? In the months after our first meeting with Will Shiflett at the Greensville Correctional Center, we stayed in touch with him by phone and email, asking him questions about his father, William Shiflett. Will says they had a close relationship throughout his life. So, you know, we, we maintained that close contact. He tried to be in my life, even though he wasn't in my life. So, it was, you know, he was there, but he wasn't there. Father and son were incarcerated in the same prison, and Will says they were able to spend time together up until Shiflett's death in December of 2018. The picture Will painted of his father as a devoted family man who had become a devout Christian and a doting grandfather while behind bars stood in stark contrast to the gruesome crime he was convicted of. In 1985, William Shiflett brutally stabbed a homeless man to death in Roanoke. The murder took place just days after the Hasem murders, and it was a similar frenzied stabbing. The two crimes happened within 30 miles of each other, in the same week. For years, questions have lingered about whether Shiflett and his co-conspirator in the Roanoke murder, Robert Albright, could have been involved in the murders of Derek and Nancy Hasem. The two men had been in Lynchburg at the time of those killings, and volunteers at a nearby shelter reported hearing them talk about the crimes. They were talking about, you know, blood and gore, and um, the rich bitch didn't pay us, and then um, they were talking about being on TV. Decades later, in 2016, newly tested DNA evidence revealed two unidentified men had bled at the Hasem crime scene could it have been Albright and Shiflett? That's the question that investigators for Yen Soaring have been trying to answer. But law enforcement in Bedford County has refused to conduct more DNA testing. And Yen's attorney, Steve Rosenfield, says he's frustrated. As Yen's lawyer, I have requested that everything be, everything that has been retained in evidence to today be DNA tested. Uh, Sheriff Harding and Detective Hudson have combined in asking that everything be tested. And to this day, nobody will tell us whether anything has been tested for the first time or retested. Former Elmerle County Sheriff Chip Harding helped create the DNA databank in Virginia. It holds the DNA of every person convicted of a felony in the state, which includes the DNA of Shiflett and Albright. Chip has worked for years pro bono on Yen's case and is baffled about why the sheriff's office in Bedford refuses to run the DNA from the Hasem crime scene through the databank to see if there's a match. If you can do that, they can run it against a databank and it may, it may hit on one of the two drifters or somebody else that we don't not even aware of. And they'd have to explain why they're bleeding in that kitchen in 1985. But 
No one's willing to do that. Everybody's got their head in the sand and want to say Yen Soren's guilty. Yen Soring was found guilty in the murders of Derek and Nancy Hasem after he gave what he's long claimed was a false confession to protect his then-girlfriend, Elizabeth Hasem. But Chip and other veteran law enforcement agents who've reviewed the case over the years say the evidence used to convict Yen's at trial was flawed, and there's no physical evidence tying him to the scene of the crime. Investigators who arrived on the Hasem murder scene in early April of 1985 described a bloodbath. Derek Hasem was found lying near the front door, with his throat slashed and more than 30 stab wounds. Nancy Hasem's body was found in the kitchen. She was stabbed five times and also nearly decapitated. Type O blood from a male was found in the living room and on the front door. Yen Soaring has type O blood, and prosecutors mentioned this 26 times during his trial. But when those typo samples were tested decades later for DNA, it turned out none of the blood belonged to Yen's. And Derek Hasem had type A blood. So whose blood was it? To us, it seemed that ruling out Shiflet and Albright would be pretty simple. Compare their DNA that's stored in the databank to the unidentified blood sample from the crime scene. So we asked current Bedford County prosecutor, Wes Nance, about taking a fresh look at the evidence in the case, including retesting DNA. He gave us the same answer he gave Chip and other investigators working on Yen's case. Unfortunately, the retesting wouldn't necessarily answer the questions we would have had from the case. Officials in Bedford where the case was investigated and tried are the only ones with the authority to make that request but we realized there could be another way to check DNA. In our first conversation with Will, we brought up the new DNA evidence. Have you heard since then um, that there was this DNA found that didn't belong to him at the scene, like blood from some unidentified people? We don't know who it is. Had you heard that piece of it yet? I have not heard that one. That's actually new to me. That's something that I have not. So, Doc, do you know what your dad's blood type is? We're trying to rule out people who couldn't have been, you know. His is O positive. I'm O negative. That definitely caught our attention. Since there was typo blood from an unidentified male at the Hasem crime scene. But as DNA expert Tom McClintock told us, type O blood is the most common blood type in America. At least in the U.S., 43% of the population have type O. The only way to know for sure if the type O blood at the crime scene was left by William Shiflett would be to compare Shiflett's DNA to the DNA at the scene. We asked Will what happened to his father's personal belongings when he died in December of 2018. Will said he thought the prison was holding them in storage, and we wondered if we'd be able to get some DNA off a comb or a toothbrush in William Shiflett's belongings. Will said he'd sign off on having those items shipped to us, but when we called the officer in charge of storage at Greensville, she told us Shiflett's stuff had been destroyed a few months earlier. Another dead end. But Will said he had kept some of his father's personal belongings, pictures and letters, and he said he'd sent them home for safekeeping. And he knew where they were. Been sitting in a box. My grandma just put them up in the attic. 
and what Will told us about who had written some of those letters convinced us we needed to see them. He claimed Elizabeth Hasem and his father were exchanging letters years after Yen's conviction. Will said before he was incarcerated, he acted as the three-way for the letters between Elizabeth and William Shiflett. And what's three-way? Like they would send them to me, and then I would take them out of the envelope, put them in another envelope, and put my name on them and send them to one. Okay. Because are they not allowed to send letters right. to each other? Prison, okay. to, prison to prison, unless if it's immediate family, they won't let you write. We asked Will if he was sure the letters were from Elizabeth Hasem, and he said he was sure because he remembered writing the name so many times when he would address the envelopes. But he told us he didn't know what the letters said. Right, I never read them. I just, I would receive them, transfer them from one envelope to another, slap a name on them, slap a stamp on them, throw them in the mailbox. There has never been evidence Elizabeth Hasem ever knew Shiflet or Albright. When Yen's legal team cited the two men as alternate suspects in the murders in one of his appeals, the court ruled there was no evidence Hasem had any connection to them. Speculation has been fueled because they were all around the same age, early 20s, and they were all known drug users in the Lynchburg area. We asked Will if his father told him how he met Elizabeth. And how would he, how did he know her? Through a prison pen pal. Okay, so he didn't know her. He didn't, like, hook up with her or date her before he was in prison. Right, right, right. No. Okay. Well, to my knowledge, I, they, I didn't, they didn't know each other prior to. Gotcha. Now, whether or not they did or didn't, I don't know about it. But I know that during the late 90s and early 2000s, I was three-waying letters for him. And that was one of the names that came through. Since Will told us the letters from Elizabeth were in the chest in his grandma's attic, we asked if it would be possible for us to see them. He told us he'd have his oldest daughter, Samantha, look through the letters and get back to us. A few weeks later, Will emailed. Hey, Courtney, I spoke to my oldest daughter yesterday, and she hasn't gone up to the attic. She said she was doing it today. A few days later, Will called and said a mutual friend had talked to Samantha. Like 20-some letters from Elizabeth. Really? So she's saying she found yeah. that many letters from Elizabeth? Yeah, 20. What? Like 20, 22. Yeah. Now we're in that box. That's crazy. That are signed... That are signed Elizabeth. Signed Elizabeth, yep. We offered to drive to his grandmother's house or meet Samantha somewhere to pick up the letters. He wrote back in an email and told us, Samantha is working in Charlottesville all this week, and she should be texting or calling one of you in the morning to let you know what time to come by and pick the letters up. We cleared our schedules and waited to hear from Samantha. I mean, obviously, we're still sort of on standby. I don't think we're going to hear from her. She doesn't even have to call. She could just text. But it would be a lot better if we could just communicate directly with her. So, yeah. And I think that maybe that's what needs to happen. So if she doesn't get in touch with us, I'm going to send Will an email tonight and just give him an update on what happened today. The next day, Will sent an email with Samantha's phone number. We called, but no one answered, and we couldn't leave a voicemail, so we sent her a text that said, Hi, Samantha. We're hoping to pick up the letters. When would be a convenient time for us to pick them up? Thanks for your help. We didn't hear from Samantha that day 
or ever. Hey, okay, so what's going on? Well, there's a good reason that we haven't been able to reach Samantha. Oh, no. She doesn't exist. What? She's a sock puppet that he created to lure young girls. <gasps> We'd been communicating with Will for months and knew he was serving time for nonviolent sex crimes against minors between the ages of 15 and 18. But when we asked for more details about his crimes, his stories varied. We wanted to verify his crimes with the court records and drove down to Campbell County, which surrounds Lynchburg. According to court documents from 2011, Will invented a fictitious daughter named Samantha. Through this created persona, the defendant would meet and or develop relationships with young women, the records say. The prosecutor describes the Samantha persona as, quote, one of the most disturbing aspects of this case. With clear evidence of Will's lying, we doubted the letters existed at all. But before we told him we knew about Samantha, he wrote another email saying his grandmother would be leaving the letters in a box on her front porch. He gave us an address and a time to pick them up. Online records gave us the name of the property owner, and an online obituary suggested it really did belong to someone in Will's family. So we decided to drive down at the time he suggested and see who was there and what would happen. It was a rainy day in May when we pulled into the empty driveway of a tidy yellow home with a well-manicured yard and chairs with bright cushions on the front porch, but no box of letters. We knocked on the door, and when no one answered, we left a note with their name and number and the reason we'd stop by. Later that day, we got a call. It was from a woman who said she was an extended family member of Will's through marriage. She said Will's grandmother didn't live at that house, and she hadn't talked to Will in years. She didn't know anything about any letters. We now knew we couldn't believe any of the stories Will had told us, including that Elizabeth Haysom and his father had ever corresponded. But in the weeks before that discovery, we had also been working to verify his father had type O blood. We scoured old records in the Roanoke County Courthouse. But when that didn't turn up any new information, we called the medical examiner's office in Richmond to see if information about blood type would be included in the autopsy report. It's not, but something else is. Hi. There's DNA. Shut up. So I just got off the phone. There's good news and bad news. The good news was that a blood sample was part of William Shiflett's autopsy, meaning it would be possible to compare his DNA to the crime scene without Bedford's help. But the bad news... We needed Will Shiflett to sign paperwork and get it notarized in prison in order to have the medical examiner release the blood sample to a lab for the DNA sequencing. Will told us he'd hoped to clear his father's name, but he wanted to get the truth no matter what, and he said that he'd sign whatever forms were necessary, but we weren't sure if he would follow through. Because in-person visits at the prison were banned during the pandemic, we mailed Will the release forms. On the day he received them, he had them notarized and sent back to us. With the help from the DNA expert at Liberty University, Dr. McClintock, we found a lab in Oklahoma City that could run an STR analysis 
on William Shiflett's blood sample from his autopsy. We asked Dr. McClintock what an STR analysis is. If you were to look over a train yard and you see a lot of trains, and I ask you, what are the differences between the trains? And you would say they're all different lengths. Why are they different lengths? Because each train has a different number of boxcars. Okay, does that make sense mm-hmm. so far? Okay. So imagine those boxcars now are pieces of DNA that are fairly short, about six, seven, eight building blocks of pieces of DNA. And those are called short pieces of DNA, and they're in tandem. They're back to back to back to back. So a short tandem repeat analysis looks at the number of these boxcars, if you will, at a particular site on your DNA. It's an address. Okay. And that's simply how you can identify you from me and me from everyone else. So everyone has a different STR profile. Dr. McClintock would compare Shiflett's STR profile to the DNA left at the crime scene, which sounds complicated, but he said the comparison wouldn't take long. Just to look at you know, one sample and compare it to another shouldn't take you know, more than two hours at the most. We found out about Will's lies after he signed the papers to let us test his father's DNA. It made us wonder if anything he told us over the past few months were true. Did he even know his father? In addition to his claims about the letters with Elizabeth Hasem and his fake daughter, Samantha, we were unable to verify several of his other stories, including his early childhood memory of being held hostage by his father or the death of his mother. We struggled to make sense of his motivations. He said he wanted to clear his father's name, but then he told us stories that increased suspicion about him. His apparent lies were elaborate and to us inexplicable. But there's no lying about DNA. It either matches or it doesn't. And with his help, we were about to find out. Next on Small Town Big Crime. Um, What the DNA test results say to me is that... um... And a reckoning with Will. So there... There is a couple of other things I wanted to bring up with you. Um, Samantha doesn't exist. Hi, this is Courtney Stewart. If you're enjoying this podcast and appreciate our work, please consider supporting us on Patreon. This type of investigative journalism is labor-intensive and expensive. Rachel and I are working on a new case for season two, and we can't do it without your help. Check out our Patreon page, Small Town Big Crime. Hi, this is Rachel Ryan. When Courtney and I first started our podcast, we found the perfect place to work and network, Common House in Charlottesville. Now people in cities across the country and even around the world can benefit from a Common House membership. With other locations in Richmond and Chattanooga, Tennessee, thousands of creative types, entrepreneurs, and other professionals like you are finding a social club that helps them make new connections, both personal and professional. Each location offers gorgeous, comfortable spaces for conversation, quiet spots for working, and tons of planned activities that spark conversation and networking. A Common House membership also comes with global benefits. You'll get access to dozens of clubs around the world, from San Francisco to London to Auckland to Singapore. Don't just take our word for it. Come check out Common House yourself, and if you spot us there, say hello.